A reading from Genesis. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, stand back. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien and he would play the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men reached inside, the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of, the, of this house, both small and great, so they were unable to find the door. The word of God for the people of God. Speak to God. Gracious and holy God, surround us with your wisdom that in our own opening of the word you have given us, we can see you clearly and hear what you have to say to us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, building on that earlier introduction, and now that you've heard the, heard the story, let's start by naming this up front. This story is most well known in our time as one that some say shows God's condemnation toward homosexuality. In the sermon this morning, I will be challenging that point of view. Let's start by setting up the story. A few moments ago, I noted that a couple of weeks ago, we read this story from Genesis chapter 18. And in that story, three men pay a visit to Abraham and Sarah, and these men turn out to be God in disguise. In the very next story, the second half of the, chapter, of the 18th chapter, the same men continue on their journey, and two of the three of them head toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, on their way, the, the one that seems to be the third, explicitly described as the Lord, says this, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
So it is clear that something bad seems to be going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. We do not yet know what that thing is. In chapter 19, we will find out what is going on in the town. Now, interpreting this story and doing so faithfully requires us to enter into an ancient world whose values were often very different from our own. As the story goes, the men enter the town and they are invited to stay in the home of one of Abraham's relatives, a man named Lot. Almost immediately, an angry mob arrives at the house and they demand that Lot send out the visitors presumably so that they may be raped or killed or both by this angry mob. And Lot, in an act that strikes us as thoroughly bizarre and shocking, offers to the mob his own daughters in place of the male visitors. What in the world is going on in this Bible story? Well, maybe a few things. First of all, in many ancient contexts, foreigners were considered to be dangerous and threatening and were suspected as enemies the moments that they walked into town. At the same time, travel was dangerous and was not entered into lightly by anyone, so others took great care to protect the welfare of travelers on the road. This dichotomy is not such a stretch from our own world, in which people can hold very strong and opposing opinions about the arrival of immigrants and refugees, and in some cases, folks are willing to be violent about it. So perhaps the greater leap for modern folk like us involves the violent abuse that is implied in this story. In the pre-modern world, many places, and still in some places today, sexual violence was a way of subjecting and punishing one's defeated enemies. Furthermore, in this male-dominant culture we are reading about, when you inflicted sexual violence on a man, you were further humiliating the person you had defeated by treating him like a woman. And finally, as for the bizarre act of Lot offering his own daughters in place of the men in his house, that shows you just how radically differently this culture thought about the value of women. Every aspect of this exchange is horrifying to think about. And only by taking the story serious enough to struggle with what it might be trying to tell us can we put an end to the harm this story has done. So with all that background, let's return to the main question of whether or not this story condemns homosexuality. I am among the many who have come to believe that it does not. Based on the scholarship I have read, it is clear to me that originally this text was meant to highlight the issue of welcoming strangers in a culture where they were most often abused. Two key observations lead me to that conclusion. First of all, 
the historical uh, context I offered to you, but also the plot of the story itself suggests that the mob in this story were not homosexuals. They were not looking for other men. The fact that this, that Lot offers his daughters to the mob in place of the men is one, one indication of this. Second, though, and I think much more convincingly, is something we find in the larger context of the Bible. And this one I will unpack at greater length. Throughout the Old Testament, and also in the New Testament, there are many other Bible stories that talk about the sins of Sodom. The sins of Sodom. Other Bible stories mention this phrase referring back to the one we read today. In those stories, the sins of Sodom are referenced as a sort of code word, a code word for really bad behavior that grieves God's heart. In these Old Testament references, the sins being discussed are many and various. Greed, injustice, inhospitality, excess wealth, indifference to the poor, general wickedness, these are the sins of Sodom. I'm wondering if I have a bad connection to my microphone. Can you all hear that? There we go. <laughs> then, in the New Testament, Jesus also at one point refers to the sins of Sodom. And when he does so, it is also in the context of talking about hospitality. He's referring to an inhospitable circumstance that was directed toward his disciples. The point of these examples, from many places in the Old Testament and also in the New, is that when the Bible refers back to the sins of Sodom, all of these other sins are mentioned, but none of these later references ever speak of homosexuality. So at least as far as every other biblical author was concerned, sexual orientation is not what the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about. And using it to condemn homosexuality in the modern world seems to fly in the face of what we understand as its original meaning. How then did this story come to be read so differently? Well, this can be a hard thing to admit about one's own history, but it seems to me that over time, and especially in more modern times, the church became hostile toward homosexuals, and the meaning of this story changed in a negative and hurtful direction in order to support that view. This is not the only Bible reference that has been used, or should I say misused, to tell Christians that homosexuality is wrong. There are about a handful of other such references, a handful in the entire Bible. But just about all of them proceed according to the same pattern I have described to you. If you come to the Bible assuming that homosexuality is wrong, you can probably find some occasional evidence to back you up. But if you're genuinely curious about the culture and time in which these texts were written, you are confronted with the reality that the Bible says almost nothing on the matter of sexual orientation. We find acts of violence and abuse, 
where sex is used as an act of power and dominance, but we do not find anything, nothing at all, comparable to the loving, committed, mutual, gratifying, same-gender relationships we welcome in the church today. Thankfully, most of what I'm saying this morning has been said in this congregation for a long time. This is not an innovative sermon here. And the sermon, I said, is about changing your mind, and most of the mind-changing that went on here at Knox about membership and ordination and marriage based on sexual orientation, most of those conversations happened years ago. But there's a broader point about sacred community here that I want to make. Sacred communities should be places where we take the Bible seriously, where we study it carefully, and where we sometimes change our minds. I am sure there are still some in our church who struggle with what they think about sexual orientation or about gender identity, which seems to be the more live issue today. And sexuality and gender are far from the only issues that thoughtful Christians continue to be uncertain about. So it seems that in order to read the Bible faithfully, everybody's got to have permission to change their minds once in a while. We see good evidence of that in the Bible itself. We even get to see God's mind changed in the Bible on many occasions. A favorite of mine is a story in Exodus 32 where we don't just observe this happening, we are told explicitly that, quote, the Lord changed his mind about what he had planned to do. That's Exodus 32:14. And even so, we are often pretty hard on ourselves when it comes to changing our minds, aren't we? Once we've made up our mind to hold to a particular opinion or point of view, it seems a bit embarrassing or weak to say that we were wrong. Sometimes we hold stubbornly to a point of view even after we've figured out that we're wrong, just because we don't want to admit it. And so, one of the qualities that I see in a community that would dare call itself sacred is the freedom to change one's mind. To change your own mind without being embarrassed about it, and to respect somebody else when they've changed their mind. So I offer you thanks for allowing me on this pretty summer morning to talk with you about a violent and harmful biblical text and its unfortunate history of interpretation. But I believe that we owe it to the many who have suffered tremendous harm at the hands of this text and the church's misuse of it to tell the truth about places where our minds have been changed. For many of us, many of us sitting in this room, myself included, are not innocent when it comes to the history of this morning's text. And I pray that I have addressed this interpretation with, with at least some humility. Because while I am confident in the interpretation I offered you today about this text, 
I'm sure there are other matters on which I and you continue to hold strong points of view and may at some point figure out that we are wrong. And so as we continue to discover those things together, I hope we'll continue to have the courage to change our minds. Amen.